Okay, we're, uh, we're going to do something ambitious this morning. So are you, uh, are you ready to be challenged? Okay, we're going to do the whole book of Acts in one morning. Obviously, not every verse and every word, but we're going to have a look at something that will take us right across the book of Acts, like a panoramic view. And uh, the reason I'm doing this is, well, basically because we've been looking at the way the kingdom works. And we've been talking just this morning, just right now, about the church in Bulgaria, the church in Uganda. And one of the things is that since we started to uh, work on these principles about following what we heard God say, only doing what we hear him tell us to do. Um, what God has done is incredible. And sometimes when we sat here on a Sunday morning, even though I tell the stories, we don't appreciate the scale of it. But, you know, in, in just over a period since we started talking about this, which is about two years ago, and over the last 15 months or so, we've, we've planted churches, we've connected churches, and... And sometimes it's really hard to get an idea of, what, of the scale of that because you just sat here. And Cheryl and I have been at, over in Norwich all week and we've been working with the church across there and Joel went across on Friday and he led a worship night because they're trying to build their own worship team there. But when you, you look at the churches that we, we support and the churches that we mentor, so basically faith life churches, um, just to give you an idea, there, there's... There's over 500 people across those churches now. And when you bring in the churches that we mentor, the network of 15 churches and four independent ministries, we're getting close to eight, 900 people. And that is incredible. And the reason I tell you that is not to say, well, you know, look at all these numbers. The reason I'm telling you that is that kingdom principles work. And so we, we need to, to start to... Uh, press in further into these things to hear the voice of the Spirit and do what He tells us to do and to say what He gives us to say. And I'm going to look at the right across the book of Acts this morning. I'm going to look at a pattern because I'm going to take us a step further. We've been talking about what we do as individuals for about the last four or five of these preaches. Today, I want to switch it onto how we operate as a group of people, as a church, and, and how that works and what the pattern was in the, in the New Testament. You know, if we, if we want to look at a pattern, then it's really good to look at God's patterns. Now, here's the thing. When I say that, all sorts of things come into my head and probably come into your head as well. And here's the sort of things that come into your head. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. You know, it was a different world. That was in Israel. That was in uh, the ancient world. It's all different now. We've got modern technology. We've got modern things. We've got buildings. We, we've got all these amazing things. And people think differently now. People look at things differently now. You've got to do church differently. Well, to some extent, I agree. You've got to make use of the things that are available. But I think the problem is that if we, if we get this idea, what worked then won't work now, we abandon God's way of doing things. And we become reliant on those modern things and modern management methods and modern organizational skills and modern presentational skills. And we replace the Holy Spirit and biblical methods by doing that. 
And, and, and what we've seen God do with, with these church plants and reaching people across all these places is absolutely amazing and nothing whatsoever to do with our ability. Everything to do with what he's doing and what he's connecting. And so here's a, here's a quote from a famous Christian of a, of a previous generation, a guy called Watchman Nee. If you, if you listen to Joyce Meyer at all, a lot of her ideas originally came from her reading Watchman Nee's books. This is what she says. Never let us regard the chapters of Acts as inapplicable today. Like the book of Genesis, the Acts of the Apostles reveal the beginnings of God's ways. And it's God's ways that are important. What he did sets the pattern for his work always. Now, what did Jesus tell people to do? Just before he, he goes up, he tells them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. So not to just go charging ahead, not to just go get on with doing church, but to wait for the power of the Spirit. I was, when we were talking in Norwich this week, we were talking about the power of the Spirit. And I was sharing some of my testimony from years ago when I was first baptized in the Spirit. And to, to see the astonishing change that happened in that room of people that were discipling. It was incredible. It's like they lit up. You know, even, even the, the, the leaders of the church over there that, that we're working with, they, they, they're kind of like, we, we saw Stu the day after, and he's like, it's just like a different person. Because you get this, 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 just this sense that we are not powerless. And the hallmark of the New Testament church is not size or numbers, the hallmark of the New Testament church, which virally spread across the word, is power. And if we abandon power, if we abandon the Holy Spirit, we have nothing that Jesus recognizes as the New Testament church. Strong word. But here's what Jesus tells them to do. Go, when you get the Holy Spirit, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. You know all this. Wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So there we have it. The, the, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Jerusalem church starts. And it all starts in a bit of chaos as they're speaking in other languages, and people recognize that something's going on. Paul preaches his sermons, and suddenly they've got 3,000 people there. And they've got a problem because they have no money, and no places to meet and nothing to do. They just don't know what to do. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You do what you know to do, which is pray and rely on the Holy Spirit and see what he's got to say about it. Because he's not worried. He's not phased because he's initiated. So he's got a plan for following through what he's initiated. And so we, we, we follow that plan. Now, just keep in mind what Jesus has told them to do. They're, they're to go and they're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Yeah? So how do we start? How do we start with this, this one church? We've got this Jerusalem church. So you've got, you've got 12 apostles. By the way, apostle, the word apostle means one sent out. Just file that for a minute. One sent out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. One sent out. So we've got 12 apostles. And 12 apostles get together and they plant one church. It's a big church, but they plant one church. And 
they're there for four years. You don't get the, because we read Acts and we read it like really quickly, you think it's all happening like bang, 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 bang. But actually, they're, they're there for four years. And what are they doing in those four years? Well, we get an insight as to what they're doing. They're learning and coping with the fact that they've now got thousands of people who have sort of moved there and they're working with those people. So now we've got 12 apostles and a few others and they're working with three to 5,000 people. And here's what, here's what we have. Acts 2.42, this is what they're doing. This is the core of how we behave when we're together as a church. Okay? Remember, last five weeks I've talked about individual. This is what we do when we're together as a church. This is how church behaves. An individual body behaves. They steadfastly persevered, devoting themselves constantly to the instruction and fellowship of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, which includes the Lord's Supper, but isn't the Lord's Supper, and prayer. So what do we find from that? Firstly, we find this, that the people are the ones who devote themselves constantly. So there is a response to the Holy Spirit. There is a response to salvation, and that response is to devote ourselves to the ways of God. Our response is not get on with our lives and ask God to bless what we're doing anyway. The the radical thing about Christianity is it does ask for your life. And so we devote ourselves to these things. We choose to do it. And the, the thing is, that's not overpopular to say things like that because you can sit there and you can think, well, I'm, you know, what, when could I find time? When could I do this? When, when, when's that going to happen? It's really a question of where our priorities are in life. I, you know, you, some of you have heard this story, but a few years ago, uh, God asked me this question, like, when did you become a Christian? I'm one of these people that knows when I became a Christian. I became a Christian on the 17th of March, 1975, 10.30 p.m. in my bedroom when I said a little prayer at the back of a booklet called Journey Into Life. So I know. So I told God when he said, when did you become a Christian? And I said, it was then. And he said, well done, good memory. So when did you give me your life? 17th of March, 1975, 10.30 p.m. in my bedroom. I'm thinking, this is, I've got easy questions tonight from God. This is good. So I tell him, and he says, so that's when you gave me your life. And I said, yeah. And he said, when did you take it back again? We won't see the results that New Testament believers saw until we have the devotion of New Testament believers. And that's why we're praying these, these, these prayers every day. We're asking God to light us up and set us on fire, just like he set Wesley on fire. And we're asking him to move in our hearts, firstly, to, to, to fan the flame in our hearts. And um, you see, we, we can get very excited about individual churches growing and all that sort of stuff. 
But the reality is, in this nation, the, in, the, the church body, the Christian body as a whole, is declining. We're just gathering in bigger groups. And, and we looked at that in the first of these preaches. But that's, that's the reality of what's happening. And so we, we need to go back to these New Testament ways of looking at things. And that means devoting ourselves to the teaching of those who've been given us to, t- to teach us. Now, that's kind of a tough one these days because you've got so much choice. But what they did is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they fellowshiped, they got together, they ate together, they they shared things together, uh, they broke bread together, they ate meals together, and they prayed. And so I want to encourage you to really get in with these daily prayers. And also, I want to encourage more of you to go to the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night because it's brilliant. You need, to, you need to go along there because there's nothing that will set you on fire so much as worshipping and praying together with other believers. And so we, we need to, to look at these things. So that's what they were doing. That's what, how the church together behaves. And remember, that's what I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about individuals. So we've got 12 apostles, they plant one church, they're doing these things. Now, here's another thing that people think. People go all right to another extreme, say, I don't like big organized church, I don't like this, I don't like that. Let's meet, let's be two of us in a coffee shop or two of us in a house, and that's how Jesus did it. And you see people posting that on the internet and on Facebook, how they met from house to house and all that sort of stuff. Yes, they did meet from house to house. But that's not the church model. You see, the problem with house things is often they stay in house and they don't get any bigger because four or five people meeting together in a house like meeting as four or five people in a house and don't want to get any bigger because it loses something that they love. And so here's the the New Testament model. They met in houses and they met in the temple. They met in houses, they met in the synagogues. And they did both. And even when they met in houses, it's not houses like ours now. What you have to think of is house with big, big, huge lounge with loads of people in it. Because they used to have open courtyards in their houses where they used to gather as groups and meet. It wasn't like two or three. It was a lot of people together crammed in these places. And so even then, it, was, it had a substance to it. And it is, you're going like, okay, Mark, well, I've seen all these verses say they met from house to house. Where, where do you find the other verse? Well, just go on a couple of verses. Acts 2.46, day after day, they regularly assembled in the temple with united purpose and in their homes. They broke bread, including the Lord's Supper. They partook of their food with gladness and simplicity and generous hearts. They met in both. Even later on, when you see the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about his ministry, he says this in Acts 20.20. So that's right at the end of Acts. He says, How I kept nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. It's both. It's both. You see, what, what, what we're seeing is a lifestyle devoted where people are hungry for the word of God. They're turning up consistently every week and it's feeding them and it's setting them on fire and that gospel is setting the, the world on fire because they've given their lives to God and they haven't taken them back. And it's, and it's, it's groups like this and it's smaller groups and it's individuals. 
The thing's alive because it's organic. The thing isn't centralized. It's centralized and decentralized. You can have both. So you've got 12 apostles, plant one church. How do they plant their church? They plant that church by preaching Christ. They say that often. We preach Christ for four years. And then what happens? What happens next is persecution comes. There's this lovely guy called Saul. And he comes along and he says, these Christians, they're, they're, they're trying to destroy our religion and we're going we're gonna to have them all killed, arrested, locked up in jail, all the rest of it. So persecution comes. Uh, one of the, the newly made up, we get, he has a quick promotion. So Stephen seems to go from nothing to deacon to apostle very, very quickly. And then he gets stoned to death. And that, that stoning prompts the church to do what? To scatter. It goes everywhere. Now, here's what I want you to see. We're four years on. And they've been preaching Christ in one place. And yet Jesus said, told them to go be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they're in one place. So somewhere along, and I, I know that you might not agree with this, but I believe and I, I think that based on the sort of stuff I'm going to tell you in a minute, that actually somewhere in those four years, they moved from following what Jesus told them to do to camping around what he would, he'd done. And there is this tendency to want everything to be big in one place and just stay there. There's nothing that kills revivals quicker than telling the world that you need to come to our revival. We camp around the things that God has done instead of hearing what he has afresh telling us to do. Yeah. And so when we, when we have focuses on building an individual site of a church, we end up constraining the mission of God. And particularly when we don't, we, we, we force the Holy Spirit out of that church in case we offend anybody, we end up taking away the very hallmark of the church, which is the power of God. And so I believe, and, and I think that, the, that, that it, it's scriptural, that the disciples, the apostles, somewhere along the line, started camping around what God was doing and had done instead of looking for what he told them to do and was doing. They got behind the Holy Spirit. And so, what did they do? These churches got scattered. And they started meeting where they got scattered to as a result of the persecution. The apostles didn't go anywhere. They all stayed in Jerusalem. And yes, they supported these churches and gave them advice, but they didn't go anywhere. And so, that's, a, that's kind of an interesting pattern. That horrible guy, Saul, has this encounter with Jesus and becomes this amazing guy called Paul. He has this radical transformation where his life is totally changed and he spends the rest of his life totally devoted to, to God, pursuing that call to go and make disciples and be his witnesses to Judea, Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul says, that's what Jesus told us to do. I'm going to go and do it. So what do they do? They, they do something as a, as a very simple model. 
they plant out. They send Paul, they send Barnabas, and they start a church. And that church is called Antioch. Have you ever heard of, of Antioch? Antioch kind of is a, like a, it's a place that Paul always returns to. It's Paul's base. Paul's not based in Jerusalem. He's based there. And they go in and out from there. It's like a, it's, think of it as the way faith life should be. We come in, we go out. We come in, we go out, and we go out, and we go out, and, and we come back. And it's like a resource base, an encouragement base, a, a, a place where we can share testimony, share excitement, share what God's doing. And we get excited about it and celebrate it together. And that's kind of Antioch. Yeah? So the, this is what Antioch, if you think about the kingdom principles I'm talking about, it's a seed plant. They plant something small and expect God to grow it. And so it's, it's kind of the, the pioneer for what's going to happen in the rest of the New Testament. Because from that Antioch church, right from the very beginning, they're sending out. So we've leapt from Jerusalem to Antioch, and Antioch is sending out. Are you still with me? We're kind of halfway through Acts now. We're doing well. So here's the pattern that, that you see coming out from Antioch. You see an apostle, let's call him Paul or Barnabas or Silas or any of the others eventually. But you see an apostle called Paul. And what he does is he, he goes out and he goes barehanded into a town. By barehanded, I mean he doesn't take up, like tons of resources under his arms and loads of money and, and set up and hire a building. He doesn't do any of that. He goes in, he goes into a town, he sits in Costa, he listens to the Holy Spirit, and he does what the Holy Spirit tells him to do, and he ends up that some people get saved. And some people who were religious start also attaching to Christianity and get saved too. And, and, they, the, and, and they were called the Jews, because Paul always went first to the Jews. And those Jews with their biblical knowledge, they could make a very quick leap to believing in the Savior, whereas all the other people in the locality needed to be taught the basics of who Jesus was and what, you know, what he came in fulfillment of. So God works powerfully through those who are existing members of churches, existing people who have a background in Christianity, and he pulls them together with new believers, and he's like, he, he lights new fires. So that's what he's doing. So Paul goes in, he, he, he preaches Christ, new converts are made, some are, some are religious people who've been related to God before, that's the Jews, others never met God, that's the Gentiles, and what Paul concentrates on is leading people into a genuine encounter with church. No. He leads them into a genuine encounter with God. And sometimes we, we can replace that encounter with God with an encounter with church. I think one of the saddest things we've done in our generation is to mistake creating atmosphere for the presence of God. I think that's one of the saddest things we have done. And we've, we've raised up a generation in their teens, 20s, and early 30s who cannot tell the difference. And that is sad. And so 
he leads them into an encounter with God and shows them how to live by the indwelling Christ within them. We talked about that in earlier weeks. Um, talks about who God is, his goodness, his love, his riches, his mercy, his blessing, his, that he's for them and not against them and, and, the, and the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in them. And what do they do? They learn to wholly depend on Jesus and the Holy Spirit for their life. And we talked about that in the, the last couple of preaches, about that DNA put in them. Divine truth, who God is, who you are in Christ and what God has done for you. N, out of relationship, out of natural relationship, born in natural relationship with each other. A, apostolic mission, witness and warfare. Witness to those who don't know uh, Jesus, warfare with all the works of the devil. So he plants that in them. He plants that DNA in them. And then what? This is what he says. That to reveal his son to me that I might preach him. That's a quote from Paul in Galatians. And what he's saying is this. What I'm really trying to help people do is to know Jesus the way I know him. Fully revealed, fully beautiful, fully powerful, fully strong, fully everything. And Paul said, as he has become everything to me, so I preach him. We, we, we cultivate that personal relationship with him. How do we do that? By listening to his voice, listening to the Holy Spirit, saying what we hear him say and doing what we hear him do. Letting him capture our heart and shape our heart. That, that, that's what we do. And, and everything flows from there. And so we, we have that. And then what's the result? The result is God's people fall in love with Christ they love one another as a result of that. And they were give, given a vision and trained in apostolic mission. That's the important link. Paul's got that we don't camp here. We train here for apostolic mission there. That's what we're doing next Saturday. Part of that, a first step in making that available. Paul has this this, this idea that his job is to train others, to train others, to train others. He, he, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about imparting to wise men who would pass it on, who would then speak to others. That's a, that's a paraphrase, four generations. And so that's, that's the pattern we're aiming for. It, it, the, our, our job isn't imparting information and knowledge that draws people to us. And it's not even part of information and knowledge that draws people to faith life. Although I think that would be a great idea because I think you're lovely people. And I like hanging out with you. But what we're aiming at is imparting Christ and an encounter with Christ to others who will train others to encounter Christ. This is all about Jesus. It's not about building church. You see, Jesus' job is building church, not us. Our job is to do what the Holy Spirit tells us to do when he tells us to do it. And if we'll do that, Jesus will build his church. And his church is worldwide and his church is across this city. And to do that, we need to go. Not just ask, not put on things so people will come. We need to go. And so 
Here's what, here's what Paul does. He, he does this practical discipleship. He shows them how to live by Christ who indwells them, how to fellowship with God together and individually. This is the DNA. And function corporately under Jesus' direct headship. And he got them ready because we live in a fallen world with an enemy, with people who hate God, hate Jesus, and it's a sick and dying, burnt-out world, and we live in that world. And Paul taught them, you guys in that world are going to face trials, you're going to face opposition, you're going to face enemy activity, and you're going to have to know how to deal with it. Because you can't avoid it. The only way you can avoid that is go to heaven. But, The reality is, Jesus has made some promises. He's paid for you, and you can do it. You can go through this, and you can overcome. And so, Paul does that. Then, what does Paul do? Because this is really important. What does Paul do next? What does he do next? He's been there a few months. What does he do? Let me just break it down a little bit. How long did that process that I've just described take at these places that Paul went to from Antioch? No, not four years. Jerusalem took four years because they used a pre-cross model of discipleship that assumed the Holy Spirit wasn't involved. What we have is Paul using a post-cross model of discipleship that has the Holy Spirit involved. And he's confident in the Holy Spirit. So here's the pattern that we see from Paul. We see a process of teaching them and showing them that encounter with God, leading them into the beauty of Christ, putting that DNA in them, and it takes three to six months. Not four years. Three to six months. How can it just take three to six months? It takes three to six months because we rely on the Holy Spirit. But it also takes three to six months because people were there consistently and constantly devoting themselves to the word. They came every week. They came hungry and they grew. And then they were able to lead other people into what they'd grown in. And it took three to six months. Guys, we... We have this like really tiny expectation of what God can do in our generation. We plant a church and we assume we've got to plan it for four years before we can do it. And we need half a million pounds to do it. Because you read the books on church planting. That's what they tell you to do these days. What did Paul do? Something completely different because he trusted the Holy Spirit. And he did it in three to six months, not four years and not burning through half a million quid. What did he then do? He appointed some elders. What are the elders? Older people. They're not necessarily leaders. They're just older, a bit more mature. And he appointed them to look after the church because they were respected by all the other people who just got saved. And he knew he could trust them. He knew he could rely on them. And he knew if there was something, questions that they couldn't answer, they'd go to him and say, what's your answer to that, Paul? And he'd write them a letter. And we have a lot of those letters called the epistles in the New Testament. So here's what he did. He appoints elders and then he leaves the church to the Holy Spirit. This is the most astonishing thing. 
Paul, every time he gets a move of God going in a particular location, he abandons it. Honestly, he does. He walks away. A lot of these churches that Paul talks about, he never goes back to. You often see him writing, I'd, I'd love to come back, but I'm not here and I've got diverted there and I'm stuck in prison here. How can you start something and then just walk away and abandon it in three to six months? That sounds outrageous to us now because we think too small. And we think, what can we do and how much is it going to cost? And Paul's thinking, what can the Holy Spirit do and how long is it going to take? And he came up with three to six months because he relied and trusted that if he planted the right seed, the right DNA, the Holy Spirit would do the rest. And if they had any questions, he could answer them from a distance. Very, very radical, very different. Remember that I was talking about this spontaneous expansion of the church. I was talking about that last week. And this, this guy called Roland Allen, who was a missionary in China in the early part of the, the last century, and where millions came to Christ. And this is still what you will hear if you hear and study some of the moves of God that are going around in the world today. Not in the West, because we've got our priorities on other things. But this is, this is what you hear. This is what he said. The facts are these. St. Paul preached in a place for five or six months and then left behind him a church. Not indeed free from the need of guidance, but capable of growth and expansion. The question before us is this. How he could so train his converts as to be able to leave them after so short a time with any security that they would be able to stand and grow? At first sight, it seems almost incredible. What could he have taught them in five or six months? Well, here's Paul's logic in that. And you, you see it in the way he, he deals with things in Acts, but you also see it in the way he writes in his letter. Here's Paul's logic. Firstly, he thinks, I've been listening to Jesus. And all those parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom, in those, the kingdom is organic. So this thing is alive and living and growing. So what I, wa I want to do is I want to participate in the way the kingdom grows rather than build something myself. So I'm going to establish in that organic, work on that organic nature of the kingdom. The second thing he says is this, the church is always born from and settled on a foundation of a revealing of Christ to the heart of the person and the heart of the people there. It's built on the foundation of Christ, who he was, what he did, and what he's still doing in their lives. So he builds on this foundation of Christ. The third thing he does is that realizes that the church is capable of organically growing in the absence of, of the founding apostle because it got that DNA into the smaller cells. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how we're all zygotes, that, that we need to get the DNA into every individual because what we've done is we put that DNA in at the church level and the church does the outreach, the church does the things, the church does the teaching, the guy at the front does the talking, the worship team does the worshiping and we, we, devolve, we, we devolve things onto the church that we're never meant to be the churches. You still with me? Because it's kind of radical stuff this, but it is Paul. So he is radical. I love Paul. Number four, 
It required the input of an apostle only to oversee growth and to keep foreign elements from choking that growth. Like Cheryl and I have been in, in Norwich all this week and we've been spending time there with the individuals, putting DNA in the individuals and training and mentoring the leaders there. And so it, it doesn't, doesn't need us to be there though because they're great. And the more we're there, the less room there is for the Holy Spirit to grow them up. Here's a, another quote from a guy called Howard Snyder who writes a lot about church growth and mission. Church growth is a matter of removing the hindrances to growth. The church will naturally grow if it's not limited by unbiblical barriers. And I believe that we've limited the church and limited the kingdom by unbiblical barriers. And those barriers are as our assumption that we have to do it. Our assumption that it takes millions of pounds to do it. Our assumption that the lost will only come if we start to look like the lost. Our assumption is that it's our job to keep as many as possible on board. And Jesus never said that. Jesus come along and he talked about eating his flesh and drinking of his blood and he scared everybody away. Why? Because he wanted those who given their lives to him and kept with giving their lives to him and lived for him, abandoned to him. He was not bothered about people who wanted to be entertained. And so Paul's following that model and we said this is... Um, from Watchman E again, we find there are two ways of preaching the gospel and establishing churches. Two distinct methods illustrated respectively by Jerusalem and Antioch. From Antioch, apostles go forth. From Jerusalem, scattered saints go forth. In one case, bands of apostles move out, maybe Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, to preach the gospel from place to place, to form churches and to return. In another, those who believe move to another city, preaching the Lord Jesus, and wherever they migrate church, wherever they migrate to, churches spring up. So what he's saying there is there's two ways that a church spread like we saw it do in Acts. Individual apostles went out and planted new things and reached new people, or scattered saints from Jerusalem were doing the same. The twelve apostles are still in Jerusalem. <laughs> So now what? Well, from the Antioch church, we get all these hubs. We get loads of churches planted. Now, here's Paul, and we're a lot of years on now. We've dealt with several questions like circumcision and whether how the Holy Spirit is on the Gentiles and all that sort of stuff. Here's what Paul does. He goes to a town called Ephesus. Ephesus is the most pagan town in the world. Ephesus is where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana was situated. And it's where um, the, uh, the temple worship was led entirely by women. Men weren't allowed to participate in any form of religious worship at all. And all the temple service was carried on by eunuchs. So men with, yeah. And by the way, that's the scenario that Paul's writing into when he's talking about uneducated women not talking in the church. It's not anti-women, it's empowering men, guys. Because men were put down in Ephesus. Because they couldn't participate in the religion. And so we, we have this situation. Now, what Paul does here at Ephesus is unique. This is not the model that he does anywhere else. It only happens in Ephesus. 
And what Paul does is, well, let me, let me show you what he does. He established something which is a training center for apostles. So we've got the churches and he's thinking, at some point, I'm not going to be here. Wouldn't it be great if I could train some apostles? What apostles? Sent ones. I just say, I keep mentioning that sent ones. Sent ones implies going somewhere else. Sent ones also implies not sitting at home in your office calling yourself apostle because there's a load of church you network with. Apostles are the ones that go. And so it's training center of apostles. And that, let me read what, what happens. While Apollo, so this is um, Ephesians chapter uh, 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul went through the upper inland districts and came down to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So somebody's around. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed on Jesus Christ? And they said, no. No, we've not even heard that there's Holy Spirit. So somebody's planted a church, but it's not got the full DNA because the power bit's not there. Yeah? So what does he do? And he said to them, he asked them, into what baptism were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. See, some people in the early church were very enthusiastic and kind of got ahead of themselves and didn't carry the full bit. That's what Paul's doing. He's cleaning it up. He's tidying it up. And he's getting the right DNA. And Paul said, John baptized with baptism and repentance, continue telling the people he should believe in the one who was to come after him. That is in Jesus, having a conviction full of joyful trust that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and being obedient to him. On hearing this, they were baptized again this time in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as Paul laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and he spoke in foreign, unknown tongues and languages and prophesied. There were about 12 of them in all. Isn't that interesting? Twelve. Because these people are going to transform a whole region from this church, from this place. There's twelve of them in the all. They went to the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, persuading and arguing, pleading about the kingdom of God. So he's doing what he normally does, three months. But when some became more and more stubborn, hardening and unbelieving, discrediting and reviling and speaking evil of the way of the Lord before the congregation, he separated himself from them taking the disciples with him and went on holding daily discussions in the lecture room of Tyrannus from about 10 o'clock till 3. 10 o'clock till 3 every day. Apostle training school. This continued for two years so all the inhabitants of the poverty of Asia, Jews as well as Greeks, heard the word of the Lord concerning the attainment through Christ of eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. And God did unusual and extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So here's, here's the scenario. He's set up this training center of apostles. He's training young men and women to go and plant churches. By the way, did you know that Paul didn't plant the church in Rome? The one he, he always wanted to get to when he wrote that great big long letter to. Most people believe that that church in Rome was at least in part planted by Priscilla. So he's sending people. The people that he can gather around him and the people that respond, he's putting his time into and then sending them. He rents the whole of Tyrannus. He taught every day from 10 till 3, and he taught for two to three solid years. Now, who was there? Here's, here's the guys who were there on the next slide. The guys who were there. There we are. You've heard of a lot of these guys. Titus is there, Timothy, Gaius, Aristarchus, Secundus, Sopater. This is where they come from, Tychicus. 
Trophimus, Epaphras, etc. Epaphras, remember from last year, he's the guy that plants the church in Colossae. Paul doesn't plant that church. These guys go and plant churches. He's kind, he's kind of like a, a remarkable group of a band that he's got there. Remember, they, were, they didn't even encounter the Holy Spirit when he turned up. And here's what, at the end of those two years, Paul leaves. But before he leaves, he does something. He takes them on a trip to see the churches that he planted before then. And why did he do that? Because he wanted them to see the churches he told them about. And he wanted to see what happens to churches if you follow this several years down the line. Because he's been telling them this works. And he takes them and he shows them, look at this church now, guys. When I came here, there was three. Look what God's doing. It's spread across all this region. Eventually, Paul makes a statement that he's preached the gospel from Illyricum to, I can't remember where it is, Derby or somewhere like that. And there's nowhere left for him to preach the gospel. Paul, in his life, only planted 20 churches, which would be good. But he didn't spread the gospel across the entire world and had nowhere left to preach. What is he saying? He says, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit's going to take what I've done and the gospel is now being preached across the whole world. And it's by people I've never met, never come into contact with, don't know, but they are there because they have been trained by people who 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 were trained by me. And I have no idea who they are. But I know because everywhere I go, the gospel has been preached and there's nowhere left for me to take it. So I'm on my way to Rome. The churches that these guys planted from Ephesus include all those listed in Revelation 2 and 3. Except Ephesus. They include churches Paul wrote to and never ever went to. Why? Because he trained them to train them. So they come to him with these questions. Let me just move on a couple of slides. Well, this is what I mean by this phrase, spontaneous expansion, this phrase that this guy called Roland Allen used. Paul, at some point, goes back to Jerusalem. And what do we find has happened in Jerusalem towards the end of Acts? The apostles have gone. They're just James. Where have the apostles gone? They are doing what Paul had done before them. And they are going out and training and planting churches. They've actually become sent ones. And what you find is that these, these apostles that were in Jerusalem for so long end up all over the world. Um, Timothy, for instance, ends up down in India. And some of the churches that Tim, uh, sorry, Thomas ends up down in India. Some of the churches that Thomas planted still in existence today and trace their origin back to him personally. They go all over. And with the exception of John, they'll die for the faith. Why? Because they gave the life. It's not theirs. So, here's a quote from a, a theologian. I'm coming to the end, by the way. This is from a guy called Donald Guthrie, who some of you might have heard of. He writes like systematic, he wrote a systematic theology book and theologian of a previous generation. This is what he said. 
Paul makes the astonishing statement that he finds no further room for the work in the region. This does not mean the area is completely evangelised, for Paul's strategy was to plant the work in important centres and then expect developing infant churches to reach the surrounding towns and districts. Only by this means was he able to reach so many areas. So let's go back to Roland Allen. I just want to look at two or three quotes of his that will just enable us to pull that all together. By the way, have you enjoyed this, like, all the romp through acts, yeah? Okay, so this is, this is the first thing. The spontaneous expansion of the church reduced to its elements is a very simple thing. Everybody say simple. Say simpler than Mark. Probably not. What is necessary is a building, money, lots and lots of hard work. Well, it might do, but only if the Holy Spirit tells you. Organization, management skills, faith, faith. What is necessary is faith. What is needed is the kind of faith, so a particular type of faith, which uniting a man to Christ sets him on fire. That's the faith we're looking for. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're trying to do every day, praying for that faith that unites us to Christ and sets us on fire. Amen? And this is, this is the next thing he says. Spontaneous expansion begins with the individual effort of the individual Christian to assist his fellow. When common experience, common difficulties, common toil have first brought the two together. And then he goes on and says this. Missionary zeal does not grow out of intellectual belief. Isn't that amazing? Because what Roland Allen discovered, and we still discover in churches right now, is you send people off to training schools and missionary mission schools and Bible schools, and the, a lot of those Bible schools see it as their mission to destroy faith, to pull it apart and pick it apart in the name of theology. We've seen numbers of people over the years who have replace genuine faith with intellectual analysis and it's heartbreaking it's not that christianity is not understandable or doesn't isn't understandable or doesn't work through the mind it's that christianity is a faith thing it requires us to take the promises of god and believe them it requires us to listen to the holy spirit and do what he says us to do and say what he tells us to say you can't get there by intellectual process because it's a supernatural event. I just, I just think it's crazy that we have the, the arrogance to think that we can pick apart the word of God and decide which parts apply and don't. I just think that's craziness. It's the sort of thing that, that, that God just kept telling Israel off for. <laughs> It's kind of a design your own God. I'm going to believe this bit. I'm going to believe that bit, but I'm not going to believe any other bits. So missionary zeal doesn't go out of intellectual beliefs, not out of theological arguments, but out of love. If I do not love a person, I am not moved to help him by proofs that he is in need. If I do love him, I wait for no proof of a special need to urge me to help him. What's it saying there? It's saying that, the, the, the kingdom operates because 
we love people. It doesn't operate because we tell the congregation that they should love people. It doesn't operate because we do and we put pictures up of, I don't know, a disaster somewhere in the world. People outside the church respond to that and they're often more generous than people in churches, which again is sad. But our call is to love each other. And, and what we're doing is operating and building the kingdom from that love. Now, coming back to where I started, because this is my last slide. So another quote from Roland Allen. Remember I said, the biggest challenge to everything I've just said this morning that runs through the book of Acts is that people are going to say, turn around and say, well, we don't live in the same sort of days. What they did then won't work now. We need to do this. We need to do this. We've got these new ideas, these great, great schemes. We've got these management plans. So we'll just do it all. And what we need is tons of finance and a big building. And we need a missionary school to train everybody. Here's what Roland Allen discovered and what sparked that move and what is sparking moves of God right across the world right in this day. You've probably seen a lot of stuff about what's going on in Iraq at the moment and Iran. Just thousands coming to Christ in the face of a nation that, where it's illegal. And you've probably heard a lot what's happened in China over the last 30 or 40 years. Huge numbers coming to the kingdom. What have they discovered? This is what they discovered. Today, if a man ventures to suggest that it may be, there may be something in the methods by which St. Paul attained such wonderful results, worthy of our careful attention and our imitation, he's in danger of being accused of being dangerous and having revolutionary tendencies. I don't get that. I don't accuse of being dangerous and revolutionary. I'm accused on Facebook and by private message of being the Antichrist, speaking the words of the devil, being the mouthpiece of Satan, all sorts of stuff I get. And I don't care. Because I'm not accountable to somebody that doesn't know me. I'm accountable to love people like Christ loved them and do what the Holy Spirit tells me to do. All I can say is this. This is the way of Christ and the apostles. If any man answers that is out of date or times have changed, I can only repeat, this is the way of Christ and his apostles and leave them to face the issue. So we face this issue. How does the kingdom grow? How do we become fully devoted, abandoned to God, on fire believers? We do it the same way as they did in the New Testament, I believe. And that's where we're going to keep pushing. That's where we're going to keep going. Um, I've got one preach left in this series, but we're coming back to this next year. It's so important we do things God's way with kingdom principles. Jesus spent three years training his disciples in kingdom principles. And we need to do the same. We need to understand those kingdom principles and then live them. Many of us understand them, but we now need to live them. 
And we now need to raise the bar on our expectation of what the Holy Spirit can do beyond slow addition growth. Here's what I'm expecting the Holy Spirit to do. I'm expecting him to change our nation in the next 10 years by multiplication growth through the power of the Holy Spirit where individual faceless believers reach individual faceless believers and train individual faceless believers to move in the power of the Spirit to get the DNA in them and go and train others. And every powerful move of God that we have seen has been like that. And that's what I'm praying for in our nation. And here's what I pray for. Start with me. Start with me. And I'm asking you to do the same. As in, not start with me, but start with you. <laughs> Amen. Let's stand. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for all that you are doing. I want to thank you for, for the guys who are, uh, worship on the streets, who are leading people to Christ. I want to thank you for what's going on in, in Norwich, in Bulgaria, and in Uganda, and in Royston, and in Letchworth, and in Croydon, and all across the, the churches that we have contact with. And I want to thank you for that. But Lord, most of all, I want to thank you for every precious person who's here this morning. I want, I want to tell them how much I love them and how much I care for them. And I ask you, Lord, that you would stir in us by your spirit that fire that we need and take our lives, Lord, and use them for your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And if you feel like you can want to respond to that, just like shout amen now. Amen. Okay, we're done. <laughs>